turn your copy of God's Word this morning to the second chapter of Matthew. We talked this morning on the way to church as a family just about the comparison between our worship time last week and this time. Last week we gathered around the couch and in the living room of a condo and we watched the worship service. We sang in the living room. My kids and my wife suffered through my singing. We enjoyed it. We listened to Pastor Matt bring the word and we enjoyed that. I took lots of notes. It was a good time. We were blessed by it. What we talked about this morning was the difference of last week and this week. The difference in watching online and singing as a family in the midst of uh, miles and miles removed as compared to coming and gathering and being in the midst of God's people. And I want you to know the blessing it is, week in and week out, to hear your voices. The, The encouragement that it gives to those around you, the way it spurs others around you towards love and faithfulness and good deeds. God has called us to be a body, to be in fellowship, physical fellowship with one another. You know, we're coming out of the pandemic. We're coming out where things are loosening up and we traveled down to Florida and through Tennessee and Alabama, across the nation, things are loosening up. And I just want to remind you, I hope you're mindful of what a blessing it is to gather with God's people. And I know there are some listening, watching right now on Facebook and YouTube. And I know some of you that are watching and listening, you can't be here. You're going through physical ailments that confine you to your house, and I'm glad we can provide this service. But I want to say to you that are watching online who can be here, or perhaps you're watching across the nation and you can gather with a local body, I want to encourage you to gather with a local body. Join back in physical fellowship and worship with God's people. There's nothing like standing shoulder to shoulder with God's people and hearing the worship of God's people. So I want to encourage you. You can watch later on. We're glad you're watching. I want to invite you back here if you're away from us or encourage you to attend a church in your area if you're not here at Grace Baptist. Well, let's look at Matthew 2 this morning. As a a parent, I think sometimes one of the questions you ask, or maybe you don't, I've asked over the years is, are my kids listening? Like, do they hear anything that we say? You know, sometimes there, there are moments where it's just think, you're thinking, man, I don't know if they're listening to us. And it's not that we have rotten kids. and You know, they'll talk about this. This will be the conversation on the van ride home today now. Um, I, the, the Lord's blessed us with four wonderful children. But there are times where you wonder, are they listening? Well, a few years back, we were setting up, and we, I enjoy decorating for Christmas. I, I don't enjoy taking it down but I enjoy Christmas decorations and a few years back we decorated them they the kids said we said you know they asked can we set up the nativity say yeah set up the nativity set and they set it up and we finished putting everything up walk around come around the corner and we see the nativity set 
and we see everybody gathered there as they should be around uh, the baby Jesus, and, and we notice down, all the way down on the other side of the piano are the three wise men, right? And there's a little announcement, a little postcard that says three years later in front of them. <laughs> and so Steph and I laughed, and I don't remember which one of you guys did that, but, um, but we just kind of chuckled, and it's like, well, they are listening. They're hearing more than we thought, because sometime in the past, whether it was from us or from a sermon that Pastor Bill preached, sometime they heard that, you know what, the wise men probably weren't there at the actual birth of Jesus. They came later, and it made enough of an impression on them that when they sat up in the nativity scene, they were going to make sure that that was made clear at our house so that we would know it and remember it. They listen. Today's passage is a, a passage that will bring to mind songs like We Three Kings of Orient Are. We're not singing that, and I appreciate if you don't burst forth in song in that this morning. But it'll bring to mind Christmas stories. It'll bring to mind sermons from Christmas time. This is not Christmas time. It's Memorial Day weekend. But we come to this text this morning, and we're going to look at the visit of the wise men. The last time we were in Bethlehem was when we were studying our, our study of Ruth, when we heard about the kinsman redeemer, Naomi's kin Boaz, who would redeem her. Now we turn and we come back to Bethlehem in Matthew 2, verse 1, and we're going to read of our King Jesus who came to redeem us. Let's read God's Word this morning. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, that would be somewhere 37 to 4 B.C. was the time of his reign. In the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. As referring back to Numbers twenty four seventeen. How did they know? They were aware of the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers twenty four seventeen. He spoke of a star that would arise out of Judea. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, let's stop there just for a moment. That, that tells me that this was no natural occurrence of a star. This was something supernatural. There, there are a lot of things that have been posed. Maybe it was a, a comet. Maybe it was the convergence of multiple planets. We even, what was it, two months ago, I think, people said that we had the star of Bethlehem's return with the planets aligning and, and everything. There's a lot of speculation, 
But when we read the text, this is a supernatural event. Remember, we talked about God is the God of supernatural occurrences because he is not confined to the natural world. So when we try to force God into being confined to the natural world, we start looking for all these answers. And listen, he says here, the star that, had, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This sounds supernatural to me. Verse 10, when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their their own country by another way. I, I want us to just pull out a, a few truths, a few points that we need to look at in verses 2 through 12, or 1 through 12. And then after that, I want us to look at three individuals, three responses of people when they can encounter Christ. And, and you may have picked up on those. I, you can think about that as we get there. We're going to end the sermon this morning thinking about what are three ways that people respond to Christ. But before we do that, just a few points of interest that you need to see and understand from the text. First, in verse 1, we read, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. We are not reading fiction. We're not reading fiction. This is a reminder that what Matthew is writing is about events that occurred in a real place at a real time with real people. This is documented evidence, and Matthew is simply saying this is when it happened, and this is where it happened. You need to know that this was, is in a historical account of the coming of Christ and of wise men visiting Christ that were brought from the east by a work of God, by a star that led them to Bethlehem from the east. Now, in verse 1, it says that wise men came from the east. You, you've heard the, the, probably the similar term magi, right? The three magi, or the three wise men, it's kind of interchangeable. They would have been men of influence who, who studied, studied astrology and they interpreted dreams. We, we honestly don't know how many came. The text does not say that three wise men came. The, the assumption and the reason we say three is why? Why do you think? There's three gifts, right? So the assumption is since there's three gifts, there must have been three wise men. Well, that may or may not have been the case. We don't know. But we say, and we, we say, okay, tradition is that they were three of them. Tradition also holds that they were kings. This is actually probably unlikely. They were simply wise men who were respected and influential in their area. What we do know about them is this. Is it where are they from? Are they from Israel? No, they're not from Israel. They're from the east. They're Gentiles. So the king of, king of the Jews, Jesus, is not first recognized by those of his people. The Jews, the king of the Jews is first recognized by Gentiles. We, we talked about that in the very first sermon. We started talking about Matthew. We talked about Matthew being written to the Jews. Matthew is, is very aware that his primary audience is Jewish, a Jewish audience. But as he writes to the Jews, he's constantly reminding them that Christ did not come just to the Jews, just for the Jews, but he came for the nations, for the Gentiles. And so we read here right away that it is Gentile wise men who come to see the king, who identify him as king. Now, as kind of a, a side note, how does Matthew end? In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what is the commission? What is the call to go to who? All the nations. Right? Matthew is continually pushing us to the nations. 
Because God is not the God, uh, just the God of the Jews. He is the God of all people. He's the God of the nations. And he will continually push us that way. Because the incarnation is simply the unfolding of God's plan of redemption to redeem people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And so when we read this and we think about the wise men coming, wise men from the east, we should be reminded of texts such as John three sixteen: For God so loved who? The Jews? No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. Do you remember what the angels proclaimed, what they announced when they came to the shepherds in Luke 2.10? Do you remember? They said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news and great joy that will be for who? For all the people. You know what that message of, of joy and good news was? That there is a Savior, that salvation had come. In Acts 1.8, when Jesus looks at the disciples, he tells them, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. He doesn't end there. He says, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We already talked about Matthew 28, 19, 19 and 20, where Jesus says the Great Commission, where he leaves them. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. But we also should remember texts like Philippians 2, 10 and 11, where you have the Christ hymn. It starts back in Philippians 2, verse 5, talks about Christ coming, the incarnation of Christ. And we get down to 10 and 11, and it says that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not just the Jews who are to bow and who will bow, but every knee will ultimately bow because he is the God of all creation. And then we come to Revelation. We come to Revelation chapter 7 and we read that great text in in chapter 7 verse 9 through 10. It says, John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number From where? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice. You know what they're crying out? They're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The nations are declaring that salvation belongs to our God. Our God. These Gentile wise men remind us that that Jesus, the King of the Jews, was the Savior of the nations. The King of the Jews, the Savior of the nations. Now look at verse 2. They ask a question. They come saying, what is their question? Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Now, there's a big difference in saying, where is the one born King? As opposed to them saying, where is the one born to be King? See, Jesus came as king. He did not gain authority. He had authority. He did not win the position. He held the position. He was not made king. He was king. So the kingdom of God was at hand when Christ came. He would preach that in 417. In Matthew 417, we'll get there in a few weeks. Jesus comes and he says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Why does he say that? The kingdom of God is at hand because the king was there. The king had come. He didn't come to be made king to gain that authority. He came because he had that authority. He held the position. He was king. And so they said, where is the one born king? Where is he? Where is he? We saw his star. And so Herod hears this. He's troubled. All the, all the people were troubled, so he assembles the chief, chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them a question. He said, well, what do you know about this? 
And they say, oh, we, we know it's fulfillment of prophecy. In, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 here, we see a fulfillment of prophecy. They, say, they tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and they're referencing Micah 5.2. In Micah 5.2, we read, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you remember again, what does is, what is Matthew do as he writes to this Jewish audience? He's constantly bringing them back to the Old Testament. He's constantly bringing them back to see that the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament. That all that was spoken of who the Messiah would be, is, it comes to full realization in the person of Christ. That he is the fulfillment of the prophecies. Now, if, if you want to turn to Micah, I want to show you a little bit of a difference. In Micah, here's what it reads. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, sorry, I just butchered that, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. In, in, in Micah, he's focusing on the insignificance of Bethlehem. The, the one, he says, Bethlehem, you are too little. You're the most insignificant of all the clans. You, you're just too little. But look at Matthew. Matthew says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. See, Micah is focusing on the insignificance of Bethlehem. Matthew focuses on the significance. Why? Because Christ's birth gave Bethlehem great significance. Christ's birth changed it, took it from being insignificant to one that is of great significance. This little town that we all know about because the coming of Christ. Now, the question that some of you may be asking is, well, that's not a direct quote. Did he change scripture? Is that okay? Well, yeah, here's what he's doing. He, he's doing the same thing as if, if we're up here and, and I'm preaching a mission sermon, right? And, and, and I'm calling you to the nations. I'm calling you to go and take the gospel of the nations. And, and I, I come to the point and I say, go and make disciples of Australia and of England and of Guatemala and of Sudan. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. None of you go, oh, it's heresy, heresy. None of you cry that. You understand what I'm doing. Matthew is doing the same thing. He is helping them understand that, that what was once seen as insignificant. At one time, Bethlehem was insignificant, but now it has great significance bestowed upon it. Why? Because the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. And that fills that little town with great significance. He's helping them see the fulfillment of the prophecy and how it plays the role in the coming of Christ. Matthew 2 Five and six, the fulfillment of prophecy. In verse six, the end of it, we see kind of the position and the task of Jesus. That the position he would come as a what? As a ruler. And the task is that he will shepherd my people. So he comes with the position of ruler, king. He comes with the task of a shepherd. See, as, as ruler, Christ comes as the true and the better king. He comes from the line of David. David is the revered king of Israel. But he's only a shadow of the king of kings. He's only a foreshadowing, a divine foreshadowing of what the true king will look like. When Christ comes, he comes to rule with majesty, wisdom, and goodness to establish peace, upholding justice and righteousness. We are told of that in Isaiah 9, chapters, or verse 7. 
where we read of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He came to rule. He was the true and better king. But he came also to be a shepherd. And he was the true and the better shepherd. The shepherd David who came and he killed lions and he killed bears to protect his flock. He told of that in 1 Samuel 17 verse 34 when he comes up and he, he's talking to Saul about going to attack Goliath. He says, hey, I'll fight Goliath. I'm not scared of him. How could you, you young man? You, you would get killed by Goliath. He says, man, I've killed lions. I've killed bears. It's no big thing to me. I do that to protect my flock. I can certainly charge this one giant for the sake of my God. Well, this shepherd who had protected the flock from lions and bears was just a foreshadowing of the good shepherd. Do you remember in John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am what? I am the good shepherd. He was the true and the better shepherd. He was the one that was the beautiful, wonderful shepherd that protected his sheep with tender care, who protected them from harm, who led them to food and safety, who gave his life for them. He provided for them. He cared for them. I, I was just thinking about that and thinking about the, the provision that a shepherd gives that a shepherd is called to provide for his sheep, to feed them, to nourish them. And I was reminded of Jesus in John 6, where, where he said in John 6, verse 35, you don't have to turn there, I just want you to hear this. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven and do my own, and, and not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The good shepherd of John 10 provides for his sheep. He nourishes his sheep. He cares for his sheep. And he nourishes us and feeds us with what? With his very self. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He quenches your thirst. He satisfies your hunger by his very person. It is Christ. It is Christ who satisfies the most intense and deepest longings of our souls. And you, as long as you pursue the things of the world, as long as you live outside of, the, outside of Christ, you will walk around and you will never be satisfied. You may have something that satisfies for a moment. You may have the candy of this world. You may taste the sweetness of things in the world, but it will not satisfy you may drink a cold, refreshing drink of the world, but it will leave you thirsty in moments. Only Christ satisfies because only Christ is the good shepherd who cares perfectly for his sheep. And the great promise of Scripture in verse 40 of John 6, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Have you looked upon the Son? Have you trusted in the Son? Have you turned to Christ in faith? You see, Micah 5.4, he quotes 5.2, but just a few verses later in Micah 5.4, we read, 
for the Messiah. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. There is great assurance and security in Christ. And we rest in him as the sheep of his fold. So I would call you today, unbeliever, if you are not a follower of Christ, I would call you to faith in Christ. The final thing we want to draw out from the text is in verse 11. Verse 11, we see that the wise men bring three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. says they open up their treasures and they give him these three things. There's a lot of speculation on the meaning, the symbolism. Is there symbolism or not? Is there meaning to these gifts? You can even find some varying ideas of what the meaning might be for the gifts. The, The text isn't really clear. It doesn't say that he gave them or they gave him these gifts signifying these things. It doesn't say that. And so we're not real sure. But again, here's what we are sure of. We are very sure of the fact that these gifts are of immense value. They're of immense value. They are gifts that would be of such value that would be given to a king. They would be given to someone in a high position. So when they give these gifts to Jesus, they are recognizing his position. It kind of makes you remember or sends you to think back. Do you remember when the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon? It's 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And the queen of Sheba comes and she comes offering all these gifts Why? Because he is this exalted and great and mighty king. And now these wise men from the east come to see the one born king of the Jews. And they bring gifts. Why? Because he is king. And they acknowledge that and they worship him. So I want us to close thinking about the responses of the people. Did you notice kind of three groups of people and how they responded to Jesus in this text? Let's see if you saw the same three I saw. In verse 3, what is the first response we see? Troubled. The troubled. The first way we see people respond to Christ is by being troubled by him. It says when Herod the king heard this in verse 3, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. They They were struck with fear. They were agitated. They were put in a, a place of consternation. They were, they were anxious. Herod was, Herod was a, a ruthless king. He, he was a man obsessed with guarding his kingship. It, it was a kingship that had been given to him by the Romans. He wasn't the rightful king of the area. It was just given to him, but he wanted to guard that so much so that he even killed his own family members. He was a ruthless king. And so he's troubled. Why? Because he might lose his authority. What, this, this new king? He, he, may, he, may, he may step on the authority that I have. But, but Herod wasn't the only one troubled. Who else was troubled? What does the text say? Her, Herod was troubled, and who else? All Jerusalem. All Jerusalem with him were troubled. Now, why would they be troubled? I, I don't know. It doesn't say. Perhaps, perhaps they, they, their status quo might be shaken. Perhaps they were, they, they were really comfortable with the life under Roman rule, that they were enjoying some of the perks. They were enjoying living in the most powerful nation of their day. They were enjoying the safety and the security of living under Roman rule. They were enjoying the, the, the nice things, the nice stuff, the nice life. They were comfortable. Do you see the similarities of both of those troubled individuals, groups? 
that, that some will be troubled because Christ might come and impinge on their authority. We all walk around, especially in the United States of America, walk around as though we are our own individual little kings ruling our lives, that no one else can infringe upon us, that we rule our domain. Oh, but if there's a king of kings, he might infringe on our authority. He might, he might be someone we have to answer to. I don't want to answer to anyone. Oh, what about those who perhaps are just comfortable where they're living? Oh, that might describe us too. That we are so comfortable with how things are in the United States. that The status quo could be shaken if we follow Christ. Well, my, my comfortable life may not be as comfortable if I follow Christ where he's leading. If I turn my life over to Christ, it means that I'm submitting to him, that he rules over me, that there is a moral authority over me. It means that I answer to him. I don't just answer to myself. I answer to a higher power. And listen, that is contrary to what we're taught today. Do you understand that? Do you understand, our young people should understand this, that the message over and over and over that's fed to you and everything you watch and you read and you listen to that you see online is that authority is something that is typically bad, it is oppressive, it is abusive, it's always something that we should rebel against. Don't respect authority. If someone's in authority, then they have some kind of hidden agenda that they're coming at you with. Is authority abused? Absolutely it's abused. Is it always abused? No. No. You need to know that Christ is king, and he is the authority. You don't make him the authority, he is the authority. You don't make him the king, he is the king. He is the ruler. He is the Lord. And so I would call you to submit to his authority. This is not something that you submit to and go, oh man, this is so oppressive, this is so terrible. No, he is the king who is holy, he is good, he is merciful, he is loving, he is gracious, he is kind. This is a king who rules perfectly. He is the king who rules in perfect justice, who acts in righteousness. You want justice? You want to know what justice is? It is found in Christ. Proverbs talks about that the one who follows the Lord will understand justice. Why? Because he is the God of justice. He knows what's best for you. And get this, he actually has the power to carry it out. He is the king of all kings. So let not your, your heart be anxious or troubled by Jesus the king. Come to him and find rest for your weary souls. Rest under his dominion, his authority, his rule. What about the second response we see here? Who, who does... Who does Herod turn to? This is interesting. You have wise men coming from the east. They've traveled a long ways. We don't know exactly where, but they've traveled a long distance to get here. And they come in, and so Herod asks, who does he ask? He, he asks the, the chief priests and the scribes. And what do they do? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah we know. It's, it's Micah 5.2. We've read that before. Great. And then what happens? The wise men go to find him. We have... No indication, there's nothing here about the chief priests and the scribes going to see the newborn king. <laughs> you would think that these men who studied all the scriptures, that knew Micah 5.2 right away, they just knew it. You would think they would go, whoa, wait, you've seen, you've seen the star that Numbers 24.17 spoke of? Oh, let's go. 
Let's go and see him. But no, what is their response? Indifference. You're troubled, and now you have the indifferent. They're, they're indifferent to it. They, they, they quote the scriptures, and then they move on. I, I can't believe that. Can you imagine devoting your life to the Old Testament, to the scriptures, to the prophecies, and you know them, you just know them off, off the top of your head, and then when the one comes, it's already fulfilled, and there's a star. Oh, wait, the star, Numbers 24, 17. Oh, is Bethlehem? What? Seriously? Micah 5, 2? And then they just go, okay. They quote it, and that's it. They're indifferent. These, these, are, these should be the ones who, who respond with great excitement. A great excitement. But you don't see that. Why? They're, they're just content in their religion. Their religiosity had probably glazed over the eyes of their heart. Or they just rolled with it. I think this is important for us. Do you understand that it is possible to do all the Christian things and to know all types of stuff and facts and knowledge of Christianity and not truly be a Christian? You understand that? Please tell me you understand that. It, it is possible to come and to play all the religious games. It's possible to come and, and to have your diapers changed, I guess this morning by my wife, she's back there, Grow up through the nursery, go over across the hall into the kids' area, into the building in the youth area, sit in the college class, and grow up and be sitting here and know all the stuff and not be a converted, born-again follower of Jesus Christ. Because being a Christian does not mean knowing stuff. Being a Christian means I have repented from my sins and I have placed my faith and my trust in Christ. What is the fruit of that in your life? Do you see evidence of conversion in your life? Or are you just indifferent to the things of the Lord? Are, 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 you, are you so versed in religious tradition, so astute in your biblical knowledge, that when you hear testimony of God's working, you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go about your day? It's no big deal. Why? Oh, that's nice for them. Are, are, are we so content with our religious deeds that when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our need for Christ, that we're indifferent to that? That we're just content with going and showing up and sitting through a lesson? That when Christ comes and the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, you're listening and you're hearing and you're doing the things, you're playing the part, but you're not a believer are we so content with that that we just go, well, that's okay. I'm just going to keep looking the part even though I'm not. Are we there? Are we there? Are we indifferent? Are we so used to religious routine that when God convicts us of sin that we have no desire to mortify it, to kill it, to confess it, to repent of it? That it's just something that we, we shrug our shoulders at with indifference? Are, are, are we so comfortable with our Americanized life that we're indifferent to the call of Christ when he says, I need and I want and I'm calling you to go to the nations? Are we indifferent to that? God does not need that. They need that. I misspoke myself. But are we so indifferent that when he calls us, that we're just comfortable in our American churchianity, that we're just comfortable coming and sitting and loving life and comfortable with doing the things that we do? That he calls us and we just shrug and go, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it. Well, guess what? If everybody says that, then nobody does it. 
Nobody does. Walk away from indifference. The third response. What's the third response? Surely you saw this one. The Magi, right? What is the Magi's response? We have the troubled. We have the indifferent. And the Magi are what? They're worshipers, right? We have the Magi are worshipers. It says going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they did what? They fell down and laughed at him. They tickled his belly. No. They fell down and they worshipped. They worshipped him. In Matthew 2.10, what do we see? We see Gentile wise men filled with joy. In Luke 2.10, what do we see? We see a message of joy to the shepherds. It's not always those who have the most religious privileges or knowledge that show Jesus the most honor and worship. Do you understand that? It is the shepherds and the Gentile wise men who come to see Christ. The chief priests and the scribes, they just shrug their shoulders in indifference and say, yeah, you go check it out. We're going to hang here with Herod. They're indifferent to it. But, but the shepherds, they come. The Gentile wise men, they come. They're filled with great joy when they see the child, when they see the one born king of the Jews. They bow down, they fall down, and they worship him. They're not settled in their religiosity. They're looking to worship the king. And we see here a model of right worship. What do they do? They see Jesus, and what do they do? They worship Jesus. The first part, they see Jesus, they behold their God. They look and they say, there is God. And what is their response? They worship him. It's the same thing we see later in Revelations 4, 9 through 11, when everyone's gathered around the throne shouting or declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And what do we see from the 24 elders? They fall down and they worship him. It is a consistent response that when one beholds their God, they worship their God. The Magi, the wise men, they were known to be wise men because they interpreted dreams. They worked with astrology. They were known to be wise men. They were shown to be wise men because when they came and they beheld the Son of God, they worshipped Him. They saw Jesus do no miracles. They did not hear Him teach. They did not see Him heal. They simply saw a child dependent on His mother, but they knew who He was. He was the King of the Jews, and they beheld Him, and they worshipped Him. They fell down, and they worshipped Him. So I would ask you, are you waiting on some profound miracle from the Lord? They didn't see a miracle. Are you waiting on this profound miracle when He has already come? He has performed miracles. He has risen from the grave. Really? He's done all of this and you're waiting back on, well, if he'll do this miracle, then I'll believe, then I'll worship. Listen, he has already done it. He does continue to do it. But if you're waiting on this great sign, you need to read the scriptures. You need to read the testimony, the wondrous mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery of the coming of our Christ, our Messiah, our King, our Savior. Don't keep waiting on a miracle. Are you waiting for this new word from the Lord to prompt belief? When Jesus is the Word made flesh and has fully revealed the Word of the, God, of, of the Father, He's the perfect revelation of God according to Hebrews 1. The Word made flesh according to John 1. Are you waiting on God to show you who He really is when He's already done so through the Word? Worship. 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 Behold our God. Worship Him. Let me ask you some questions that you ask yourselves. And we're going to ask again. Let me ask you, who has held the oceans in his hands? Who? 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 That's right. That's right. Jesus has. Who, who has numbered every grain of sand? Who has done it? 
Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice in the name of our God, in the greatness of our King. They worship him. Who's given counsel to the Lord? Who? <laughs> Who has given him advice? Who can question any of his words? <laughs> who, who can question the one who knows all things? You? Me? No way. Can we question that? No, absolutely not. Can we fathom all his wondrous deeds? I could never in my life fathom and understand and comprehend all that he has done. Oh, but I can behold it and see it and worship him because he is a great and a mighty God and I can cry out to him that I praise his name and give glory to him because he is a great and a mighty God. The response is not, hey, I figured you out. The response is falling down and worshiping him. Why? Because I haven't felt the nails upon his hands, have you? Who, who has felt the nails upon his hands? Have you felt that? Have you felt the sacrifice that he went through? Who has borne all the guilt of sinful man? Have you? Have, have I? No. I haven't borne all the guilt of sinful man. I can't even bear my own guilt. Except the fact that he is sinless. And he's borne the guilt of every sinful man. The weight of sin upon his shoulders. God eternal, humbled to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Oh, Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Let us adore him. Nothing can compare. Let us adore him. He will reign forever. He will reign forever. He will reign forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we worship you this morning God when you came it was a magnificent day a magnificent day the unfolding of your plan to redeem man born king king of the Jews but savior of the nations and God we are grateful for that and we praise you for that and God, I know that when we encounter you, God, there are some who, that troubles. It steps on their toes. It, it makes them uncomfortable. God, you change lives. And you are king. And God, I know that some, they encounter you are indifferent. The eyes of their heart are glazed over by religion. God, many are worshipers. God, I rejoice that in this place, in this moment, in this day, many are gathered that worship you, King Jesus. We worship you. We don't understand everything. We can't comprehend everything. We can't fathom all your wonderful deeds. But God, when we see you and we look to you, we worship you. You will reign forever. And so God, we want to do that now. We want to sing out to you. We want to give praise to you. And God, I pray for friends here who are troubled, who are indifferent. God, would you break 
the scales of indifference off. God, would you lead those in unbelief to repent and trust in you today? God, do a great work in us, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.